Welcome to the Security Analysis Podcast. This podcast explores investment strategies, economics, personal finance, and stock analysis. It features real conversations and analysis to inform, educate, and entertain. Note that nothing in this podcast is investment advice, and it is for entertainment and discussion purposes only. Do your own due diligence before making any investment. Now, on to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Phil Back. He's the CEO of Armada ETFs, a REIT specialized asset manager. He has wide-ranging experience in the ETF business, including time spent as a managing director of the NYSE. He's also very active on Twitter and operates a Substack blog. Welcome to the podcast, Phil. Hey, great to be on. Thanks for having me. So why don't you tell me a little bit about how you first got interested in investing and what's happened on your investing journey? Yeah, I was always interested in investing as, as a kid. And I, you know, I told the story recently on another podcast, but it really started all the way back, you know, in like fourth, fifth, sixth grade with baseball cards, which, you know, now it's kind of hard for people to understand if they're not, you know, if they weren't around in the late 80s, early 90s, but like that truly was taken as investing, kind of like the way I guess, you know, NFTs might might have uh, you know, introduced investing to some investors these days, you know, young, young investors. And, you know, similarly to NFTs, it was kind of a frenzy in a bubble and, you know, a lot of lessons from that. But, you know, then growing up, I, you know, I read all the Michael Lewis, but the Michael Lewis books at the time, at least, you know, to date, was very interested when I was in college, I'd, I'd been playing fantasy baseball, like, you know, religiously, took it very seriously and was very interested in the, the sabermetrics or the advanced analytics community. And I was long before Moneyball, long before Moneyball was written, let alone the movie. My older brother was, an actuary before that he was like a math major in college and his friends were all math majors and they would like have these long discussions and group threads about baseball analytics and you know i took a lot of interest in that and you know wrote some things and read a lot of things the old you know people know the baseball prospectus but those those kind of discussions and skills really translate very well there are a lot of parallels to investing and when I graduated college, you know, I wanted to do that. I wanted to do, I guess, what we would call now trading or, or you know, analytics. You know, I wasn't exactly sure what, but I started my career in, well, my first job out of college was with uh, an aluminum importer, import-export. And I thought that'd be like trading, you know, it was literally the job was called trader, but it wasn't quite the same thing. And it wasn't really like, you know, when you start, you don't really know, you just kind of fall into things. And it wasn't really what... You know, I don't think it was really what I envisioned. You know, looking back, I mean, it was a perfectly fine job in a fine place. But at the time, I had a friend who was day trading in the most, you know, literal sense. This is back, you know, when people were just trading NASDAQ stocks like willy-nilly, close your eyes and just start buying and selling. And they were hiring people on his trading desk. And, you know, I showed up for an interview and the interview was basically, do you have a pulse? I said, yes. He said, okay, well, we're going to register you for the Series 7 and come back if you pass it and don't come back if you don't. And I showed up on the trading desk. I mean, this is the height of the trading mania bubble in the dot-com era. It was really after the bust a little bit, but it was the end of it. And the firm that I was with, they thought it was going to be, well, there was a big up and a big down. And now, you know, their technical analysis, there was going to be another big up. And it was pretty wild because when I started, there were like 75 traders. We were right by the uh, World Financial Center. There were like 75 traders on the desk. I mean, some of them were trading pretty large sums of money. A lot of them were people, like there was a guy who was a doctor. He was literally an MD that quit his job to trade. It was fun. It felt like a video game. You know, the, I, I said on my first day, the guy sat down with me and said, this is how you buy, this is how you sell. And he says, you know, control Q, post on a bid, control, you know, how to lift the offer, how to sows, how to do all these different things. And then he walked away. And I said, okay, well, when do I buy? When do I sell? He's like, well, if you're good, you'll figure it out. And that was it. And as you might imagine, 
you know, as algos got developed, like those momentum traders, scalpers, those strategies died out very quickly. And that was like, that was like the end of it. Like when I started, like I said, there were 75 traders within six months, they were down to a dozen. And, you know, I caught the very end of it. And, and, and it, was, it was very clear to me that, you know, that kind of trading was not a, you know, a profession or a job that could that could last. You can't use the feels to beat the market indefinitely, right? You get lucky here or there, but you can't, it's not really a sustainable way. And, you know, I did a little bit of FX stuff. I got a job in FX brokerage. And then, you know, ultimately I, I met someone who's starting an ETF company, a startup in the ETF industry. And this is before, you know, a lot of people knew much about ETFs. And I was very lucky. It got me, you know, a real early look into the industry as like the young junior guy, the jack of all trades analyst type at a startup which gave me a lot of exposure to a lot of different areas. And, you know, the one that I probably took the most to is product development, which, you know, means a few different things. It's, you know, kind of product management, it's legal, it's, you know, quantitative and backtesting. I mean, there's so many aspects that go into it. And I kind of fell in love with it. And I really embraced it. And I did that for a long time. I ended up at Ridex before we got acquired by Guggenheim and was product manager and built a bunch of their ETFs. You know, we did the equal weights, the pure styles, currency shares, and some other stuff. Mostly, you know, at that time, most of the innovation in ETFs was about smart beta. So it was like, you know, the broad benchmarks had already been out. It's like, now we're going to do, you know, the next generation. FTSE Rafi was really big. Equal weight was really big. You know, what's kind of the next generation? Let's find a simple catch to outperform in a systematic, transparent, rules-based way. And, you know, kind of a long-winded way through my career, I ended up going to NYSE and I did a lot of market structure work and, and things for the ETF industry before I started my own company. But it was really that experience in trying to innovate in the ETF space and find systematic rules-based factors that we could use to exploit, you know, single star advantage that probably had the biggest impact on me as an investor. Very cool. So going back to the baseball stuff. So you mentioned that you were interested in Moneyball and Sabermetrics. What's your position on, on all of that? Do you think that's the way to figure that out? Oh, hundred percent. Anything that could be quantified, measured, optimized needs to be anything. And, you know, we're starting to see now things that people previously thought unmeasurable in sports and, and elsewhere, you know, we're finding ways to measure. And, you know, I mean, you know, we might talk about later in the show what we're doing in AI and machine learning, but the tools that we have now to do more calculations, to do faster calculations, to do things that we weren't able to do even just a decade ago is incredible. And, and you know, I think a lot of people are dismissive about AI lately. Oh, it's a fad. It's a trend. I think a lot of people are missing what it really is and what's going to be lasting out of it, which is simply the ability to do computing on a much, much higher level than we've ever, ever been able to do before. So if you're solving for the same things that we've always solved for, using the better computing power, you're going to be at a huge advantage. But yeah, I mean, I, I love the Moneyball stuff. I, I don't watch as much baseball as I used to. I have kids now and kids these days aren't interested in baseball. I can't get them interested to save my life. They love football, watch a lot of football, a little bit of basketball, but not not much baseball. Yeah, it's kind of boring for I think modern attention spans. So I can I can see what's going on there. So with AI, that's interesting. Like, so I agree with you. I actually think AI is probably going to change the world in a big way. What are what are some of the developments you see coming with that? So, you know, across the spectrum of AI, there's a lot of things being worked on, a lot of people using it for, you know, workplace processes and things like that. You know, obviously we've seen what, what we can do with uh, ChatGPT and others. We've seen what we can do in terms of content creation, which is incredible, also kind of limiting, right? You can't really model creativity. You can't model humor. You can't model spontaneity. So there's still a place for, you know, obviously there's always going to be a place for, for, you know, humans, but the grunt work, right? Anything that could be programmed now can be done, even sophisticated, you know, language processes 
where we're really focused is more on the quantitative side. So, you know, let's say that all the factors, all the, you know, the smart beta factors or, you know, anything that can go into an equity model have been mined, have been optimized already. Let's say, and of course, it's always changing. That's not the case. But let's let's take that as a starting point. If you say that, then the question becomes, well, how can you go deeper into understanding those factors and how they relate to each other to go yet a step further in terms of mining them for the benefit of, you know, whatever you're solving for? Performance is an absolute return, relative performance, uh, low correlation, whatever it is that you're solving for. How can you use this new computing power to get there? And, you know, we're not seeing a lot of research published on that because I think a lot of people People are keeping what they're doing close to the vest. We're very focused on that, on solving that. And uh, I think that's, you know, going to really be a paradigm shift in how portfolios are managed in time, in the appropriate time. So when I think about that, like applying AI to finance, so it seems like a lot of people have been looking at a lot of this data, you know, for a long time now, and they've come across factors that are agreed upon and work. Do you think that AI can actually find you know, new factors, new ideas that no one has thought of before, even though they've been looking at this data for a long period of time? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And but, but, you know, again, you need to, you know, it's a question of what you're programming the AI to look for and solve for. So like, for example, if you run an unconstrained AI model, say, find me factors in, in the stock market, I want to solve the stock market, like the guy in pie, right? And it'll come back to you and it might say, hey, what we've discovered is that stocks that start with A outperform other stocks. Why? Because the training data, the data period that they're looking at has Apple and Amazon in the A column or, you know, whatever. Like, you know, you might get to things that are data mined or that are, you know, that have historically worked in a training set, but that don't stand this, don't pass the smell test. That you don't, you don't have a reason to think that that's a sustainable edge over the long term. So you have to combine good judgment with the data, with the factors, but you can program the AI to look for factors and it can do it faster, quicker, and better than a human can. And then it's up to a human to determine like whether or not this is just like data mined, like the A's, or if it's actually like a legitimate factor. Yeah. Or you can build a process to test the thesis and the data in, you know, a way to, let's say, recreate a data set that looks different than the data set that it was trained, that the model was trained in. Right. You can you can try to do that. But but, you know, at this point, at this stage, I think you do need some human judgment. And look, you know, it might be that there are reasons why stocks to start with A is, in fact, a good factor. And even though, you know, you or I might dismiss it out of hand, that's mm. our bias and our foolishness. In fact, there are advantages that we can't understand for those companies and those stocks to do better. I mean, obviously, that's an extreme example, but but that could be the case, too. And, you know, a lot of I think the interesting discussion that's happening and that's going to happen in AI is you know, to what degree do people trust the model and are hands off and to what degree do they override it when their good judgment and their smell test says to do so. And it's a very difficult, in some cases, some cases easy, in some cases very difficult to say and to answer. So you've been critical in your work of market cap weighted indexing. So where you've called it like a cult. So what are some of your <laughs> chief criticisms of market cap weighted indexes? I think it's completely ridiculous. And, you know, in a period <laughs> where we've been, which is a lot for a long time, where flows into cap-weighted funds, but also, you know, direct indexing derivatives are almost all benchmarked to cap-weighted. So much flows have been coming into the strategy that you can say that that has driven the flows are responsible for the performance. And then people look at the performance and they say, look, aha, you see, it's, it, it, there is no area in your life at which you would say, I'm going to, I'm going to be a smart buyer by buying at 
you know, quote unquote, at the market, right? If you're trying to buy a car, you're comparison shopping, you go to the grocery store and you see seven brands of, of salad dressing, right? You look at, you look at the quality, you look at the package, you look at it, you look at the price. It's a factor, right? And this idea that that price doesn't matter, that we can, I mean, who's setting the price too, right? So the idea that, you know, the prices are being set by the market as this efficient thing, as this thing that never gets it wrong. I mean, you don't have to look past one day's performance chart to see that the market is ridiculous. The market does not get things right. The market said that, that a screenshot of a, of a monkey picture was worth a million dollars last year and is worth zero today. You know, the market is not right. And it, it's not hard to look at, you know, I don't know when you're going to release this podcast, but if I were to say today, I would say NVIDIA. If I would say a year ago, I mean, there, there are stocks that look very undervalued and very overvalued to the naked eye. And with your models and what you're doing on the value side, there's a higher level of sophistication there. But there is no impetus right now. There's no there's no mechanism in the market to reattach intrinsic value to the stock price, right? It's like this runaway train. There's not enough discretionary market makers setting prices. So this cap weight becomes this like runaway train. It's a momentum factor, essentially, where the biggest companies just keep getting bigger without any stop because why do I care what the PE is on Amazon or on Apple? Like it's just going to keep going up. And that's how investors are thinking. And you know, the the indexes are dominated, the cap-weighted indexes are dominated by these larger companies. The diversification benefits have been severely eroded, not only by the concentration. If you look at the Herfindel Hirschman index, if you look just simply you know, at the top five stocks, the weight, the top one weight, the top 10 weight, et cetera, et cetera. But also by the fact that historically, there have been periods of time where the indexes have gotten crowded out by these big names. We've never had a period where they're all in the same sector, in the same zip code, even in the same zip code, right? 30% of the S&P and half the NASDAQ are, are these tech monopolies. And, you know, look, it's hard for me to imagine anything that could disrupt Google, Amazon, Apple. I, it's hard for me to imagine that, right? What's going to stop that runaway train? I, I don't see it, but I know that it will be something. It's something I didn't see coming, right? But it's happened to every company in the history of time. General Electric, Johnson, I mean, you know, you go back over time. Nokia was rock solid and nobody, you know, anticipated the iPhone before when Nokia was the top cell phone company. There are antitrust regulations we've had in the past. We've had, you know, these conglomerate companies companies and things pop up, there is always, always, always boomerang effect. There are cycles. There are things that are going to happen that are going to bring things back to, you know, smaller mid-cap companies, but, you know, back to, you know, away from monopolies, you know, towards other independents. And we're going to see that. And it's going to ultimately, it's going to trickle down into people's portfolios. And, you know, this idea that, you know, there's a lot of people that have just stopped thinking critically about investing. They almost take pride in the fact that, ah, I just buy the, I buy the index fund. You know, first of all, they point to the cost savings. And yeah, of course, they're, those funds are typically cheaper, but they're using data that Bogle put out in a time where active funds were significantly more expensive on a relative basis to passive than they are today. Those mm -hmm. cost savings are a lot less. The active funds used to pay very high transaction fees for the stocks within their portfolio. They don't anymore, right? So it's a lot easier now. What, what's happening now is not that you're getting all these efficiencies in the market cap-weighted index funds. Is that they're just the tailwind of these flows is still pushing these things up and the never-ending ZERP and QE environments and the never-ending permanent bid from investors that feel like they can't save. But all that's ending. You know, as rates go up, all that is ending. And, you know, I think we're going to see a new era and a new environment. I don't know when. This could go on for a long time still, but at, at some point we will. And I think a lot of people that were basis point was a penny proud and pound foolish or something. So we'll say mm -hmm. Point proud and percentage point foolish. I think a lot of people are going to end up looking foolish that they've been in these funds 
at the end of the day. Yeah, that's a good point you made about what Bogle was saying, because like I was looking up the other day, what was the average fees on funds in the 70s? And the average, there was an average sales load of 8.5%, which kind of like blew my mind. So I, I agree. It is much different when you're talking about like an ETF with like a 50 bips fee versus you know, something like that. Like, and I was talking about, I talked to Eric uh, Balkunas earlier and he was talking about the Bogle effect and his whole thesis is that that's coming to active. And if you look at that typical fees charge for active management now, it's, it's getting very reasonable. So I don't know if that argument that the fee advantage of index funds holds as much water as it used to. It's not only the fee advantage, but it also used to be that it was very expensive to trade stocks. Like if you look at the Bogle era, the underlying, the, the active funds would trade more than passive and there would be a very high sales commission for every stock that they traded within the fund. And that would that would directly come out of performance. You don't see, you know, that's not, it comes out of performance. And now it's almost it's almost zero for funds to rebalance, for funds to trade. So it's a, it's a whole different paradigm. Yeah, that's true. And the turnover, you're right. It used to be a much bigger drag. Like I know in the 70s, I think commissions were set at something like over $100 a trade or something like that. And now it's virtually free. So that doesn't really hold up. And you're off on the execution too, right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. You'd have these crazy spreads. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. So, and then, so going back to what you were saying about how there's not enough active managers. So like, where do you think the right, equilibrium is like what is the like i don't i don't know what is the right equilibrium between active and passive so you know passive to me is not a category it's a collection of individual strategies and individual approaches and you know i think 100% of the right passive strategy for you is better than anything else but passive as a category versus i mean active active as a category versus that passive is you know i mean to me passive is a factor one factor is it's the momentum factor. It's the size factor in, in reverse, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's what passive is. And and active, if you know, if you take it from the quantitative standpoint, active is a number of other factors. So you know, size, the size factor is like the inverse of the of the market cap weight size factor. And that's why, you know, I'm a big fan of equal weight and why I launched well, you know, a long time ago the reverse cap weight fund, which I'm not affiliated with anymore. But you know, the size factor is one. But you know, you've got a number of other factors, as you know you know, on the value side, momentum. And there's there's just like a, a ton of factors that people don't talk about when, you know, I, I one time launched a fund based on customer satisfaction survey scores. And we found that there was a, a real factor there. There's a, you know, there's a leading indicator. If people are happy with the product, they'll keep buying it. And that product has purchasing power, has pricing power, you know, over their competitors. And there's a few other advantages. So, you know, that's a factor. You can probably get to hundreds or thousands, hundreds or thousands of factors that you can, quantify and that you can point to as alpha active as a discretionary thing. So active without systematic rules-based processes where you say, ah, you know, I'm just going to buy this because I like it. You know, I don't know how much of that is being done. I mean, everyone's got screens, right? You might have some discretion within some constraints, but you know, you're pretty much still a collection of factors. So, you know, when I say act, when you say active versus passive, to me, it's really a question of, well, this is one factor of market cap weight versus a collection of all the other factors. And what's right? I mean, the real the real trick here is to master what factor in what environment. Right, right. And I mean, those environments are constantly changing. Like there's environments where the large cap momentum does well, they can last like a decade, and then you'll have a reversal of that and you'll have a different environment. You might be on the verge of something like that now, who knows? 
So you mentioned the reverse market cap weighted index. So I know you're not affiliated with that anymore, but I thought that would be a cool thing to talk about. So what's what's the case for reverse market cap weighting? Well, it's still my favorite fund. So, you know, so <laughs> I mentioned earlier when, when I did like the bio thing, I talked about how I was at Ridex and I was the product manager for a time on the equal weight S&P, the RSP. And, you know, I spent a long time explaining and, and thinking about, you know, why RSP historically it outperforms, I think uh, like 60, 65% of the time versus equal weight historically. Lately, a little less so, but, but you know, over time. And, you know, why is that? And there's, you know, really two factors primarily. One is a size bias. You bring down the weighted average market cap significantly. And the other is is more interesting. The other is a mean moment, a mean reversion factor where every quarter when you do a rebounds, you know, some, you, you have your equal weight, right? Some go up, some go down. It comes rebounds. You sell all the winners and take profit and you buy all the losers, right? And you get everything back up to parity. Well, that's, that is definitionally, that is mean reversion, Right when you think about market cap weight in between, so you rebalance it, right? In proportion to its market cap and something goes up and something else goes down, then you rebalance it again. Guess what? Whatever went up, you're putting more money in and whatever went down, you're putting less money in, right? So these are kind of like two uh, sides of a pendulum here where you've got mean reversion versus momentum within the S&P. And I always thought it was a very interesting concept. So, you know, when I was on my own, I said, all right, well, I want to build something that is going to compete against equal weight. How can I extrapolate that mean reversion factor within the context of equal weight? How can I extrapolate that and give people more of that? And the answer is when you think of a seesaw, you think of two ends, you don't have market cap weight and equal weight. Equal weight's the fulcrum. Equal weight is right in the middle. The two ends are market cap weight and reciprocal market cap weight or inverse market cap weight. We couldn't use inverse because you've got inverse funds, which are like negative beta. So I used reverse. And all we do very simply is we take the market caps of all the S&P 500, we take the reciprocal, one over market cap, and then we reweight each stock out of the pool. And what you get is you get smallest to largest of the S&P 500. So it's like, you know, your weighted average market cap drops to a point where some people will call it mid cap. I always contested that, but, you know, you're dealing with the S&P 500 and you're, you get to make a small cap tilt or a mid cap bet within your 500 largest stocks, within your large cap holding. And, you know, it works in periods of, you know, in periods of, you know, small cap bias and it works in periods of mean reversion. Huh. And so do the back tests show that that strategy outperforms the S&P 500? Pretty drastically. It's almost like a mirror, not exactly for a bunch of reasons, but it's very close to a mirror between the alpha, between equal weight and market cap weight and between reverse cap weight and equal. Again, if you think about the seesaw, you can kind of visualize it and it outperformed the cap weight aversion about 65% of the time. It's mathematically impossible for equal weight to outperform market cap weight without reverse cap weight outperforming equal weight. Mm. So whenever equal weight is performing, reverse is doing better than equal. Again, think of the seesaw, right? We launched it in 2017, right into the Fang run, <laughs> and right into a run of market cap weight, which uh, you know even to this day is persistent. So it, it was it was very bad timing. It underperformed since the product launch, not all the way through, but for a large large parts of time. But again, you know, I don't think that's a permanent condition and. You know, if I were a betting man and I am, then I'd bet on uh, reverse cap weight to, to beat market cap weight. And I have, and I do. So. so I also wonder, maybe it's easier for an investor to stick with that rather than just concentrating on like the worst performing S&P 500 stocks or the cheapest S&P 500 stocks, because you at least get some exposure to that, you know, to the high flyers and all that kind of stuff. Sure. I, I agree. And uh, I would think so as well. Yeah. That's super interesting. Okay. So 
you've done a lot in the ETF business. You know, you started ETF companies. What are some of the challenges of opening and, and opportunities of, of starting your own ETF company? So you mentioned Balchunas before. There's a quote from Eric that I love where he calls ETFs the Silicon Valley of finance. Oh, and, wow. You know, I like that. Here is that, right? Anybody, if you have a great idea that nobody's thought of before that you think you can you know, bring into an ETF, the barriers to entry are not insurmountable. They're high. You know, you're probably talking about about a quarter million dollars, maybe $300,000 a year in operational costs to run an ETF. That doesn't include distribution costs and and other things. So, you know, it, it is more expensive than just that, but that's pretty much the marginal cost for a fund company to, to operate a new fund. And then the revenues are very simple. It's just AUM times expense ratio. It's easy to, easy to see, but these things are very, very difficult to get to critical mass. And that's, that's a large part of the game. The success rate of ETFs that have significant seed capital or an early investor of size is quite high. And the success rate of funds that don't is, is incredibly low. The reason for this is, you know, a bit of a mystery. There's this idea that's been put out there, mostly by the big guys, but this idea that, that's been put out there that an ETF size is a measure of its liquidity. That's not the case. It, it matters not how many other people already own and uh, are custodying shares that are off the shelf in an ETF. There's no bearing at all. But that, that's the idea. And a lot of the gatekeepers that can provide access to different investments have bought into that idea and have kept funds out based on their size. So, you know, it becomes very difficult to compete on, you know, when it comes to distribution, but it's, it's possible. It happens. People have success, but it's not easy. So, you know, if people think about ETFs as a business, I would say that's really the area to focus is on distribution and, you know, to a degree seed capital so that you can get through those uh, early levels that will allow you to distribute it in a broader way. So what is the critical mass? So, you know, what is the critical mass where that makes an ETF profitable? So it depends and there are different levels, right? So if, if there's somebody who has a, let's say runs a model portfolio on a TAMP and they have a number of subscribers, right? You want them to use your fund. Do you think it's better? Maybe even their model optimizes your fund in. They're going to have criteria often before they, for inclusion on like, let's say size, right? So that might be 20, 25 million. It might be 50 million. It might be a hundred million. You know, the same with a lot of product gatekeepers. There are different, you know, there are some platforms or, you know, wirehouses that might have different distribution deals that you have to do with, you know, literally, you know, you got to cut them a check. So explain to me how that's legal, but there are different things that, that, you know, other people might look for. Generally speaking, as a rule of thumb, I'd say, you know, 25 to 50 million puts you in the game and a hundred million makes you broadly available. That's cool. And what, what advice would you have for someone who maybe wanted to start their own ETF or start an ETF company? You know, look, I'm, people can reach out to me directly. I used to, you know, I used to run a company where we did a lot of sub-advisor work and, and white label work for other ETF issuers. And there's some great firms out there that I would recommend. So, you know, everyone's different. It, you know, if you're building, if you're intending to build a 25 product suite for a large asset manager that you think will be at 50 billion in, in 10 years, then you would structure it differently than you would if you have a one-off idea that you want to keep low cost and try to get out there through social media, let's say. So it's very different in, you know, what you would outsource versus build yourself. So it's kind of a case by case and hard to give broad, broad advice. But I'd say the main thing is to think about something that's from an IP standpoint, something that's protectable. So like a discretionary active strategy would be if you have access to some sort of data set that nobody else does, it could be, but something that's protectable because people will try to copy you if you're successful. Wow. Okay. That's good. That's good advice. So let's talk a little, let's talk about Armada. So what you're currently doing right now. So you have two very interesting ETFs. I thought we could start with HAUS. So what's the investment case for HAUS? 
So it's quite simple. It's a it's a pure play on the residential REIT sector. And you know, when you look at REITs, a lot of people just assume, I always assumed that, you know, a REIT is just broadly real estate and they're they're more or less fungible with each other. You know, REIT is a REIT, you're gonna get exposure to real estate. But what's happened is that REITs are what they are in reality is not necessarily real estate. They're mostly real estate. What they really are more precisely is a tax treatment. And we're seeing more and more types of real estate-ish companies getting put into REITs, even though they're not exactly real estate. So you see like hospitals and see cell towers, you know, different things like that, that investors don't realize that they're getting access to. And we wanted to provide something that was pure real estate. You know, we think that the rental income comes into these to these REITs is, is relatively stable, even if, you know, home prices like the Case-Shiller is declining. We think that, you know, the rental income is, is fairly stable and that these multifamilies and, and you know, residential units are quite, you know, quite prudent long-term investing. And we wanted to provide something that offered that without the, you know, kind of muddiness of other REITs that are not the same thing. So in other words, there are companies that aren't truly real estate companies that are kind of taking advantage of the REIT structure for tax purposes. Is, is that what's going on? Exactly. Yep. Uh, gotcha. Data centers, category, products like that. But the merits of those are, you know, I'm not saying that those don't have their own merits, but they're not what people think. When people think that they're in, let's say, VNQ, I think broadly most investors think that they're in pure real estate, and uh, that's not really the case. So we wanted to provide something that would give investors pure real estate exposure. Yeah, like, so I actually own some VNQ, but yeah, when you look at what's in there, you see, like, you see the data towers, but you also see like mortgage companies and stuff, and it's probably not pure, like real estate, what you're kind of thinking of when you buy it. Yeah. Yep. And, and, you know, those, you know, some of those categories have been very successful. Data centers have been very successful. And like we talked about with market cap weighting, the more successful they are, the more of a representation of the overall portfolio they become. Uh, to the point where they're crowding out other categories. Gotcha. So the other one is PRVT. So what's the investment case for PRVT? Yeah, so this one's a little more interesting. So, or a little more, I would say, spicy. <laughs> we've noticed, you know, the category of private REITs, which is a huge category. You know, we've noticed some things that we think are a little bit problematic to investors. So for example, many private REITs are gated now. You know, they have liquidity issues and, and they've, you know, closed redemptions, investors are trapped. You know, the valuations have been called into question, the NAVs. So we wanted to provide something that would give people the same exposure, the same private real estate exposure that they that they want, that they have, but do it in a more efficient vehicle. And that's exactly what we've done. So what we're doing is we're replicating the fundamental allocation of these private REITs, which means the geographies, the property type, the property classes, the subsectors, we're matching their allocations, but we're achieving it not by buying private real estate, by using public REITs, where the valuations have diverged from these private REITs by about 30%, just in broadly, you know, VNQ versus like BREIT, let's say. And when we run our calculations, when we do our apples to apples comparison of the valuations implied by the NAVs in the Starwood REIT and the Blackstone REIT, then we get to a divergence to the public REITs of 40% by FFO and by cap rate. So a 40% divergence is massive, obviously. So we wanted to give investors a chance to be on the right side of that arbitrage. Interesting. So is this an antidote to like the B REITs and the private funds that charge high fees and you know are illiquid? Yeah, we believe it is. We believe it's a, a way to give investors the same access to you know the fundamental allocations that they would get there, but to do it in a vehicle that is 
lower cost, more liquid, doesn't have the ability to gate you, but also takes advantage of the valuation gap. So for this valuation gap, what do you think is driving that gap? So the way the the way the NAVs are set in these private REIT funds is using an appraisals-based NAV system, which has, you know, human elements. It's is lagging, right? It, it there's a delay. And, you know, it, it's different than a mark to market. So so with with the public REITs, they're being valued every day, mark to market, right? Wherever people are willing to buy and wherever they're willing to sell with their own dollars, right? So you know if somebody is bidding or offering on the secondary market, they believe in that valuation to the point where they're putting their money behind it. But that's not what happens in the private REITs. The private REITs, you know, the, the properties are appraised and they're set by the appraisers. So, you know, you might say that there's some human biases that, you know, that would uh, lead an appraiser to, you know, be, um, you know, a little anchored towards where they previously set the marks. And when the market turned pretty drastically earlier this year, and there was a huge sell-off in the public REITs, the private REITs didn't follow. So, you know, you could say that either there's something fundamentally different when a property is owned by a private REIT versus when the same property is owned by a public REIT that would cause a massive divergence in valuations. Or you could say that, hey, you know, the, the rubber is going to meet the road here and you want to get out in front of it and take advantage of the better allocations. This is a vehicle to do so. Yeah, that's super interesting. Do you think that this has kind of been driven by a hunger by institutional investors for like an uncorrelated asset, and then it's not really what they think it is? To a degree, to a degree. I think there's also a very high embedded selling fees that that provide an incentive. And there's also an idea that's been proliferated lately that anybody could buy a public fund, right? Anybody could buy an ETF. It's not hard to get an allocation that's that's publicly out there, but to get an allocation to a private fund is somehow more exclusive or better. And this idea has led to you know, what I call the illiquidity premium, right? There should be a liquidity premium. You pay more for your money to be more accessible, to be more liquid, but, you know, for kind of social reasons or for, you know, the impression that that you're getting something otherwise exclusive that you couldn't otherwise get has led to the market treating it like there's an illiquidity premium, like you'll pay more for something less liquid, which is completely absurd. And I think the market is going to correct on that. Yeah, it's kind of funny. So if you go back and read Buffett, he actually talks about this. And his perspective back in the day was that you will find better deals in public markets than in private markets because typically two private sellers are a lot more rational or two private buyers and sellers are more rational than public markets typically behave. So it's kind of funny that that's all been inverted somehow. Isn't it? It's wild. Yeah, it it doesn't it doesn't make a lot of sense when you really when you really think through it. Like, why should something illiquid and private be a better deal than something public? And you know, we constantly see examples of how public markets can just go bonkers, and there's probably more deals in the public markets. <laughs> so, let's talk a little bit about some of your articles in your Substack. So, you've had some uh, pretty interesting articles. One I really liked was an article you wrote about career advice. So. You talked, you went through a list of things that like kind of young people can do to advance their career. So one of the items was sell wire hangers. So what does what does that mean? So that that comes from my brother, the great Arya Bach. He has this idea that in every town there's a dry cleaners, right? And that dry cleaners gets his wire hangers from somebody. That's a business. And that company, that wire hanger company, has probably been around for a long time. It's probably fat and happy. They're selling their wire hangers to their customers. This is a, you know, you, you're the only game in town. A sale is probably a 30-year sale, right? 
And, you know, there's nothing sexy about it, right? You don't have people, the the sharpest and, and smartest people graduating from, you know, Harvard MBAs and saying, I'm going to get into the wire hanger business. When you're foolish like me, and maybe some of it is vanity, and you say, I want to get into the asset management business and compete that way, I think you're competing against very, very motivated, well-resourced and smart people for sometimes much, much smaller margins. And, you know, the, the idea here is find the wire. You want to compete against the guy who's working three hours a day because his father started a wire hanger business 30 years ago. And this guy is spending half his day on the golf course. That's who you want to compete against. You don't want to compete against BlackRock like, 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 like an idiot like me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's good advice, I think. And how about turn up the megaphone? We live in an age these days where everyone's got access to tools that we never did before. I mean, this is a perfect example, right? You're anonymous on Twitter, but here you are talking to people on a podcast and you know, being able to learn about ideas, share ideas. That's never been that's never been the case before. It used to be that, you know, you would have to get a job as an interviewer on CNBC or you know, or the radio, right? It was it, not just right. call up and, and interview people and, and talk <laughs> to investors and share it. So it's a pretty rare and special thing. And I think I think people would be wise to take advantage of it. I think it's going to get harder and harder over time to, to build your audience. You know, it's going to get more and more crowded. And I think those that do over time will be glad that they invested in it because it compounds and it stays over a long period of time, an audience. Yeah, I certainly agree. The fact that I was just able to open up a blog and a Twitter account and start writing about investing. And it seemed to have resonated with some people. And that's been pretty amazing and wouldn't have been possible even like 20 years ago. So I agree with you there. So what's the importance of, you also wrote about failing towards career success. What is the importance of failing? So I think, you know, and, and a lot of this, I don't remember specifically with that post, but you know, a lot of the idea of, of failing comes from Scott Adams, who's now become very controversial, but he used to just be this nerd who did this Dilbert blog. Yeah. He wrote some <laughs> books, like really incredible books. And one of them was like, how to fail and still win big. And I can't remember if I referenced that in the post, but you know, there are a lot of lessons there. And, and I think you know, a lot of you know, my personal experiences, the times that I've failed have been way more instructive than the times that I've succeeded. When you succeed, you know, if you succeed because you get lucky, you're smart. And if you fail because you're unlucky, you're unlucky, right? It's like the clock classic thing. And I think if you can kind of flip that and take the view of, well, maybe I was lucky when I succeeded, but maybe I kind of sucked when I failed. And what can I learn from and how can I improve? The lessons from failure will really stick with you and will really resonate in a much deeper and personal way. So, you know, I think if you look at failure as that, you look at failure as something not to fear, but something to embrace as a way to get better and to get smarter, to find where your flaws are, you know, to, to keep keep trying to keep doing new things, you know, even if there's a possibility of failure, not to run away from that, but to run towards that, then you can accomplish really great things. So, you know, I think a lot of it is really that it's the idea that anything we do requires the risk of failure and everything we learn is, you know, not everything, but almost everything is the product of failure. So failure in itself is, is a net good. Good advice. So another thing I thought we could talk about, you seem to have a very good eye for fads like Theranos and FTX. Like I've seen you write things like you pretty much saw the writing on the wall and saw the paper that they were scams. So why do you think people fall for this stuff? And what's your opinion on that? I don't know if I caught Theranos ahead of time. I'm not sure about that. I mean, I do find these things fascinating, but I think 
you know, the, there are patterns that, you know, repeat, there are things that kind of pop up over and over again that, that we see. And, and, you know, the, the get rich quick crowd is, is always a telltale sign, right? So every new thing is always a whole crowd of people that are, you know, trying to get rich as quickly as possible. And when you see people going in that direction, you know, you know, that there is some pain to follow, you know, but there are certain, you know, I, I think, I think I like to, as a thinker, uh, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not the most educated guy in the world, but, but what I do like to do is always bring things back to first principles, right? To simple, like it should make sense. It should just make sense on the most basic level. What is business? You buy for a dollar, you sell for two, right? You, you built something of value, you put that out there. And, and when there are these different things that, that have shortcuts that have things that don't necessarily pass us, MMT, I think is a good example of that, right? Oh, okay. All of a sudden deficits don't matter. How do you get rich? You spend more. Uh, really? Does that work in your daily life? Does that does that follow first principles? If I'm playing a game of Monopoly, does that work? Does that work if I create kind of a, a micro, a micro, right? I say, okay, me and you and, and five listeners, we're going to create this little world over a weekend and we're going to start out with a certain amount of resources and we're going to try to create businesses. Like, can you recreate that? That idea that I'm just going to, you know, borrow and spend and deficits don't matter. No, you can't. It doesn't really make sense. You could twist yourself into a pretzel saying so. You can build a bunch of two-dimensional economic models that might point to some things, but there's always unintended consequences. And you have to have a healthy disrespect of authority, a healthy disrespect for the data that only captures certain time periods and has, you know, certain parameters that we're maybe not privy to, things that, you know, might be unique for the era or that, you know, might be changing over time and take it back to first principles. And when you have just that very simple take, like the very simple, like, hmm, let me, let me, you know, let me trust my smell test. You know, I think a lot of short sellers have this in them. That's why I, I, I love short sellers. And I typically identify, even though I'm not one and I've never been one, I think I very, I identify very much with them. They're very contrarian, but they're very, I think when you talk to them, they're very simple thinkers. There's something should make sense. A company should make sense. I should understand what they do and how they generate money. And when they don't, they're telling me, oh, you just couldn't understand is all this you know that there's some bullshit going on. And, you know, I think I take that approach and how I look at a lot of different fads and companies. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a, those are some good examples. MMT. It's interesting. Like I think their point of view is okay. We have the reserve currency and we can run deficits and we've been able to do that for a long time without any consequences. But at some point, it's got to matter. Like at some point you ruin the reputation of the reserve currency or at some point the deficit has to matter. Like that just can't go on for forever with no consequences. Yeah, it's, it's a joke. And at minimum, at minimum, even if you say like at minimum, they're still risking, right? So with what, with what probability would you say we don't have hyperinflation? Right. With what probability would you say that the dollar remains a reserve currency? 90%? Okay. So that means that you're willing to take a 10% risk of catastrophic failure? Like they, yeah. they just don't think of it that way. Yeah, I kind of think of it almost like like obesity and heart attacks. It's kind of like, say you have someone who is extremely obese and then it's, they're like, well, I haven't had a heart attack. So that means I can just keep eating this way. Like at some point you're going to have a heart attack. So. <laughs> exactly. Look, modern medicine, you know, is different. Now we can eat this way. And and look, you know, no, I haven't had a heart attack yet. It's exactly a perfect example. Yeah, yeah. Example. Yeah, interesting. So you also, so going back to this fad thing and how some things don't make sense, you've been a Bitcoin skeptic. I'm a Bitcoin skeptic too. So what do you think is the case against Bitcoin? There's a lot, the Bitcoin, the Bitcoin evangelists, I think get a lot of things right. And I think, you know, they've identified a lot of the Austrian economic principles that I, that I hold dear. I think there are some, you know, some 
maybe overrated or overstated, but there are some advantages in terms of payments and, you know, some technical things that, that crypto can do. And, you know, I think it's very unlikely that they succeed long-term and really mainstreaming Bitcoin, but I hope they do, but I don't think they will for the reasons that, you know, they use it as a currency, right? It's not really used as a currency. It's used as a lottery ticket and, you know, to use it as a lottery ticket, there's nothing wrong with that. I, you know, I don't begrudge somebody for, for gambling, but, you know, call it what it is. And, you know, the idea then becomes, well, it's a greater fool play, right? Is there a greater fool that's going to come along and buy it from me? And that's a very reasonable trade to make, depending on your time frame. It's very reasonable to think that here is, you know, something that is, you know, presumed it's not always or presumably non-correlated, that it's trading on totally different factors, that it will uh, go up. There's, you know, no upper or lower band for what it could do. So, you know, you can expect super high volatility. There's nothing wrong with buying some as a, you know, as a, as a, as a flyer, it's a small percentage of your allocation, but what if it goes to a million? Um, I don't think there's anything wrong with that, but at the end of the day, at the end of the day, there has to be some use case or intrinsic value on a long enough time frame for it to retain value. And, you know, if it was used as a payment system that, you know, the payment system of the future and people were truly able to evade, you know, government and taxes or whatever their goal is, then you could say, great, if people were able to do cross-border payments and they were, and they were doing it in a way that was really resonating and you say, okay, people, you need to have some Bitcoin. But the idea that you should buy it just because it's going to go up on its own or that you could sell it later is just simply greater fool stuff. And, you know, ultimately that's, that's not, it's sustainable. It's not necessarily a bad trade, you know, but on a long enough time frame, eventually, it's there's people are going to move on to another trade or another idea. And I don't know. I just, uh, I think, I think there's a lot of risk that people aren't privy to. And I think there's also some other, you know, structural things that people are kind of overlooking, you know, what if MicroStrategy hits a margin call, you know, what if Tether is completely taken off the table? What if the whole thing has been supported by Tether, by fake Tether is being created to support the price? What happens then? What's next there? And I don't see a lot of people answering that or taking that question seriously. Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And for me, I mean, I don't see how it's useful as a currency. Like if I were like, if we were to make some kind of deal, like, hey, I need you to build me a deck next month and I want to get paid in Bitcoin. Well, that could fluctuate by like 50%. Like we could be talking about a completely different deal. We can't sign a contract for that. So what what use is it as a currency? And I mean, the other aspect of it too is like, I think there's the big looming threat over Bitcoin, I think is the US government. Like if the US government said tomorrow, this is banned, it's over, like party over. Like if they say you can't hold Bitcoin. And I mean, they've done things like that before. I mean, they banned gold ownership in the thirties. Like they could, they could absolutely do that to Bitcoin. I think eventually say there's some terrorist attack or there's some type of foreign government plan, some kind of attack, it's probably going to come to light that they've moved the money around the world using Bitcoin. And at that point, game over. Like, that's probably what I think is going to happen. I mean, look, I hope it works out. I'm not, I'm not like an anti, but like, you know, the, you don't have to be in every trade. Yeah. And there are plenty yeah. of trades that I don't participate in. And, and, you know, a lot of, have a lot of good friends and people that are real believers that are in it. And, you know, they, they might be right. I might be wrong. And I recognize that. But for me, I just can't get, can't get past the fact that, you know, that it is a hundred percent treated as a lottery ticket. The mm -hmm. idea of, 28 million limited supply or 21, whatever it is, the limited supply is ridiculous because everyone's trading derivatives off of it. And you can create your own swap or derivative off it that essentially creates an unlimited amount of, of supply. So, you know, I, I think there's a lot of risk here and, and I'm just, I haven't, I haven't bought in, but I do, I do love that they're fighting the fed. <laughs> I love that. <laughs>
Yeah. So something else I thought we could talk about a little bit before we wrap up, Kathy Wood. So I understand you have a nuanced perspective on Kathy Wood. So you want to talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So there are two different things. There's, you know, what she does, and then there's the investment approach. And, and I think, you know, valuation does matter. Buying things that are innovative, but at any price to me is folly. You know, what are you buying it at, right, is, is important. And I don't think they ask that question. That's a criticism. But we are also in a world where, you know, when we talked about market cap weighted flows, where very few people are thinking critically about what they're buying, there are very few people doing different things. And for us to have a healthy, thriving capital markets, we need price setters. We need people who are willing to do things a little bit differently, think a little bit differently, value stocks a little bit differently, and set those prices. And she does that. And very few people do. And I think if we had more people like Kathy Wood, maybe with different strategies, maybe a value version of Kathy Wood or you know, within different ideas and different categories and asset classes. But I think if we had more of that, we'd have a healthier market as opposed to people who are just, oh, investing has been solved. I'm going into cap weight, which is to me a lot more dangerous than what she does. Yeah, that's an interesting point of view. And I mean, if you go back to like 2017, 2018, a lot of people used to talk like, well, active investing is over. You know, this is, we're never going to have more. Everybody's eventually just going to go passive. And I do think it's cool that she's, I, I disagree with her investment strategy, but I do think it's cool that she's kind of thrown a monkey wrench into that and offered some some alternatives. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So before we wrap up, anything that you'd like to add for the listeners? No, I, I appreciate everyone listening and and I appreciate you. I'll call you V for value stock or VSG. Yeah, that works. <laughs> I appreciate your, you know, your blog and your Twitter feed and, and this podcast. So uh, it's great to connect. Thanks. And what are the best places for people to um, reach out and, and learn about you? I'm on Twitter at philbach1, B-A-K is Bach. I'm uh, on Substack, philbach.substack.com and all my company stuff, which is to go through compliance, but the company stuff is at armadaetfs.com. Cool. Well, thank you for your time. All right. Thank you. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more information, please go to securityanalysis.org. Subscribers to the website get early ad-free access to podcast episodes in addition to weekly in-depth profiles of companies.